This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Brotherhood Mutual Insurance Company, a ministry-focused insurance and payroll provider serving Christian churches, schools, and related ministries. For more information, visit brotherhoodmutual.com. Today is May 1st, and you're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. And today we will be talking about the state of Christianity in France, one of the world's most secular countries. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. I am joined by my co-host, Mark Galley. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Good to be in warm Chicago. Absolutely. I'll foreshadow my precious moment in that I left Denver and it was 31 degrees and snowing. Oh, wow. You have something <laughs> nice to say about the weather here. That exactly. is a great thing. I'm happy to hear that. All right. So who are we talking to? This morning, we're talking to Raphael Ansenberger. He is director of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries for the French-speaking world, president of France Evangelization, and adjunct professor of intercultural studies at Columbia International University in the United States. Welcome, Raphael. Thanks for having me on the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Maybe you can tell our listeners where you're calling us from, where you live. Uh, I live in Nice now on the French Riviera. Mm-hmm which is a lovely place, and you need to come and visit. Yeah, that's a nice place to suffer for the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> so what do, you, what do you see when you look outside? Is there like, do you see bo- a body of water? Is it beautiful? Yeah, well, um, we, we have nice offices, but not to this point. I mean, we have to be reasonable within the budget. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's not, fair. Every ministry has to be reasonable within a budget. Yeah. It's okay. Well, we look out. We look at our office and see water sometimes too. It's usually after there's been a lot of rain. Exactly. <laughs> then it pools in the parking lot. Well, let's kind of give people a sense of why we are discussing this topic today. As most people know, two weeks ago the Notre Dame caught fire and burned, not to the ground, but the damage was so severe that some have suggested that the church may not reopen for up to five years. As efforts to raise money to rebuild the famous Paris Cathedral have commenced, it's catalyzed a larger discussion about the state of Christianity in this officially secular country. So last year, Pew Research Center did a big report on the state of religion in Western Europe, and I thought I'd just kind of go over the French religious breakdown that they found. So they saw in their research that when they looked at the population, 18% of the population were church-attending Christians. 47% of the population, so almost half, were non-practicing Christians. 22% of the population was not religiously affiliated, and 8% was a different religion, or they said they did not know. So a month prior to the Notre Dame fire, Newsweek published this article. It said Catholic churches are being desecrated across France and officials don't know why. And I just wanted to read a couple lines from this um, particular report. It said France has seen a spate of attacks against Catholic churches since the start of the year. Vandalism that has included arson and desecration. Vandals have smashed statues, knocked down tabernacles. 
scattered or destroyed the Eucharist and torn down crosses, sparking fears of a rise of anti-Catholic sentiment in the country. So that's also kind of happening, you know, against this other context of the fire in Notre Dame, which there's no reason to think that this has been caused by vandalism. But um, obviously these things have all happened in a short period of time. So concurrent to all of this, France continues to welcome immigrants, be they Christians or Muslims who practice their faith often much more robustly than the local population. And so this week on Quick to Listen, we wanted to discuss the state of Christianity and, of course, more specifically, the evangelical movement in one of the world's more secular countries and what the aftermath of the Notre Dame blaze reveals about religion in France. So... Mark, I think we should just do our gut check about this particular fire that happened a couple weeks ago. Yeah, the main gut check was, uh, as was to be expected, but it still was disappointing. It's understandable and disappointing in that when the fire, when Notre Dame was described by uh, journalists, it was described as a an icon of the French people or the country of France. For a while, people seemed to forget that it was a it was a building built to honor our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. <laughs> it was a church. And Mary. Hello, the and name. Mary. Well, there you go. And Mary, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was the main thing. But, you know, like most people, uh, it is something special to France. There's no question about that. But it, given the worldwide reaction to it, I was surprised. It, it seems to be iconic for the whole world in a lot of ways. Yeah, when you were saying that, I thought that was an interesting point because the day before that it burned, it was Palm Sunday, and they actually had Palm Sunday services in there, and presumably they were going to have a number of other Holy Week services that were going to play out there. But I actually think that that speaks to kind of attention that I'm assuming we're going to get into about a country that sees itself as secular. But when people think of like what really seems to epitomize it, um, one of the things that they pick is a church. That's interesting, um, yeah. And so why is that, you know, what is this kind of like bleeding together of yeah. these two things that's happening? And when I think of a country that's supposedly secular, I don't think of a country in which 18% of the church uh, population is attending church and another 40% still consider themselves Christians but non-practicing. So I'd like, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into that with Raphael. Yeah. It seems more religious than I imagined it to be. Raphael, do you want to give us your reaction when you found out that there had been this big fire that had happened? Yeah, it was it was very interesting indeed to see the reaction of um, of people in France, uh, and it, it's true that you had on one side those who mourn the fact that it was a place of worship, uh, the Catholics mainly, and then often uh, noticed that the the media or even the French president, when he addressed the nation the day after, didn't mention the Catholics, and then another segment of the population, which is the the largest segment who remembers Notre Dame as a place not just for uh, religious activity, but also that had inspired movies, uh, cultures, a cultural icon, um, a, a reference point when everybody visits Paris, so you have to go through Notre Dame. And so in a sense, uh, Notre Dame has this dual heritage. It's a spiritual heritage, but it's also a very strong cultural heritage. So we can understand why you know, some people would choose to emphasize one rather than the other. So... Uh, obviously, I read these numbers at the beginning of the show, and I kind of wanted to revisit them because Mark mentioned them as well in his gut check. So I don't expect any of our listeners to remember these off the top of their head. So I'm just going to go through them again. So it found that there were 18 percent of the population were church attending Christians as 47 percent of the population was non-practicing Christians. 
22% was religiously unaffiliated and 8% was a other religion or they said they didn't know. So, Raphael, when you see these numbers, do you find them surprising or kind of consistent with what your experience has been in France? Well, when it comes to numbers and statistics, it really depends the way you actually count. Uh, we're using a little bit of different statistics range, uh, which I think will speak better for uh, those who are listening to the to the podcast. Usually what we say uh, is that uh, one out of 10 French uh, people is going to church on a g- any given Sunday. Uh, so that, that makes 10% of the population. And that, that is roughly 6% Catholic, practicing Catholic Christians. You add on the top of that 3% uh, Protestants, which will include evangelicalism and Pentecostalism, and then Orthodox. So basically within the tradition, the Christian tradition faith, and you get to 10%. So one out of 10 French uh, person is going to church on a Sunday, and now nine out of 10 either stay in bed or do something else. Uh, that's pretty much uh, the the way we we talk about um, uh, church um, attendance uh, today. Yeah, it could be often when they do church attendance in American polls. Have you attended church once in the last month or yes. twice in the last month? So that that would explain the disparity. But your stat seems real, more realistic in terms of the, how it's felt week week to week. Yeah, that's right. I mean, still fifty four percent of the French people would would uh, identify themselves uh, as Catholics. But when you actually dig into that, there's a uh, at least nine different tribes within Catholicism. Uh, ah. But the bulk part is is actually social or cultural uh, Catholicism. Those who would subscribe to the Catholic faith and understand actually what they're talking about. That's more in the six percent. And I've even seen recently another figure of four percent which would signify that the number is still dropping in number of people attending church. And I guess, uh, you know, the recent uh, scandals uh, in, in the Catholic Church has, have not helped too much the perception of uh, the French people over, you know, the relevance of the Catholic Church. So what I found interesting about how Pew kind of had this taxonomy of different groups that they were surveying was that they had non-practicing Christians. And I know you said that there's there's even greater variance in how you've studied this, but maybe you could talk to us a little bit about the ways that um, Catholic identity is understood and experienced, even if it's not necessarily practiced in the way that we like think of faith being particularly practiced. So usually what you will find is a, uh, is a split uh, among generations. Uh, so if, if we want to really uh, call it uh, like this, uh, if you take 50% up, uh, those would be Catholics um, who have been raised Catholics, and so they would define themselves as Catholics. And when you when you ask them what they mean by that, uh, it means that they were baptized, or they had their children uh, baptized in a church. Uh, they were usually married in a church, and they surely hope to be buried in a church. Um, then when you ask uh, the, the, the 30, 50, uh, this is a generation um, that uh, uh, needs to remember if they were raised Catholics or not. So that's 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 still a remote uh, souvenir in a sense, um, and and they're they're not really sure why uh, their parents asked them to 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 be that because they will say that their parents are not really that religious. Um, so that's that that proportion is questioning really if they're Catholics or what actually means to be Catholic. And then if you take the 30, 30 years old and under, um, that's that's where you will find more a militant uh, generation, uh, those who attend uh, the Catholic uh, youth event a day, 
uh, is very popular. Uh, those who will go to Teze uh, community, um, those who will um, uh, have um, a regular pilgrimage um, to, to different places of worship. And usually those are militant in a sense that they abide uh, by the Catholic uh, faith and the sacraments and uh, the tradition. Uh, so that's broadly uh, how we would see the split uh, when you look at the different generations. It's interesting because when I saw news photos of people praying on their knees as the cathedral was burning, uh, most of the people were young that were doing that. Yeah, absolutely. This, this is surprising. But if you if you go to Paris on Sunday evenings, uh, you have a lot of Catholic churches who are uh, putting together uh, special events for, for youth. And uh, and it's it's there. I mean, uh, uh, the, the 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 Catholic youth is very much militant in a sense, and it's uh, it's interesting to to see that they uh, they are being also inspired uh, by the evangelical church in the way they express their faith, uh, the kind of worship uh, that they are bringing to the church, the way they do evangelism and missions, and uh, it's it's almost sometimes uh, difficult to. To, to see if uh, they are actually Catholics or evangelicals. That's very interesting. That parallels some things that are going on in the States. I attended a, a couple uh, midweek Catholic outreaches because uh, I knew people who were speaking at them. And the tone of the meeting was just like, like you described. If you didn't know better, you'd say you were in a charismatic evangelical gathering to listen to someone talk about abortion. It was just quite, quite, a, quite interesting to me. Yeah, you see the same phenomenon in Poland, uh, for instance, where uh, the, the the youth is very much active in the Catholic Church, and it's sort of a rebirth. But it's not coming out of tradition; it's really coming out of uh, of, uh, of faith in the credos uh, of the Church. So I, I'm curious because you know, at one point, obviously, most of the French population, an overwhelming amount of the French population, would have identified really robustly as Christian or Catholic. And so was there a particular point in the last 50 to 75 years where that type of level of enthusiasm really began to wane? And could you give us some of the context for why you think that happened? One thing that is a little bit difficult for um, the listeners uh, coming from North America to understand the state of the church in Europe is the fact that uh, when, when America was birthed, it was decided not to have any state church but from the very beginning to offer a pluralistic understanding of how religion could be practiced. That's why the rise of denominations is, is quite recent in, in church history, and it's actually North America that has given that to, to the world. Um, but only until very recently, uh, European countries were defined or are still in some places defined by a state church. So in Germany, this is a Lutheran church. Uh, in, in, in Norway, Sweden, you have state church. In the UK, you have the Anglican church. And in France, it was the Catholic church, like it was in Italy and, and Portugal and Poland. So being, being Portuguese or being Polish or being French equals uh, you belong and you're born within the state church, and, and the church sponsors the state and vice versa. So it's very difficult for Europeans uh, who were born in a state church to imagine that there's actually a reality beyond uh, the state church religion. And uh, that's why for a lot of the French people, uh, there's nothing beyond being Catholic. And if you say even the word Protestant, they might have some vague souvenir, but for them, the Protestants are in Switzerland, and they're not necessarily uh, in France. Uh, and that's that's very important for our listeners to to understand, and and that makes it difficult. But to answer your question, 
I'd say that uh, the, the split started in the 17th, uh, 18th century for, for multiple reasons. Uh, number one uh, was the, 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 the way uh, wars were raging throughout Europe between Protestants and Catholics. And at some point, it became really difficult for, for pe- people to envision actually building a society on a religious ground. Okay, who do we, who we, do we trust and, and which confession do we follow? Uh, so that was uh, that was difficult. That's why the rise of deism uh, was perceived as a better option uh, already in the 18th, 19th century. Um, that uh, if we can all agree that there is a first mover, uh, there's a great architect, and that would be the definition of God. And this would be removed from any church tradition or religious definition. Then maybe this would be the start of uh, something that we can build on. And that was at the core of the Freemason uh, enterprise in the in the 18th century, and and with that it was fueled uh, in the field of uh, philosophy with the Enlightenment, of course, and the rise of subjectivism, the idea that uh, actually I can exist beyond uh, a cosmos, uh, beyond a society that is um, uh, regulated by order, and I can exist uh, uh, for myself. I can have. Uh, a personal opinion, and it can be different than the one that is perceived as to be the norm uh, by society. And it, when you look at uh, the trajectory in France, uh, there was a definite split uh, in the early 20th century, uh, especially uh, in 1905, when there was a strict separation between church and state through uh, a law that we call the law of laicité. And you have probably heard that word somewhere, somehow. Uh, through the media, and and that said that it was pretty much the end of the story for the Catholic Church in terms of uh, running the school system, running the hospitals, being involved uh, in the the public life, even the political life. Uh, 1905 was a definite divorce, uh, a, a bad divorce, I might say. Uh, and and then overnight in 1906, you had two splits. Uh, you had a split and two Francis, pretty much. You had the Catholic Church, which. Uh, uh, deemed that the Pope was actually the ruler, and then you had the 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 the, the Republic of France, uh, where uh, you know the Republic was the ruler, and it took basically till 1960, 1970 to to bring back some sort of peace uh, in the, in this couple uh, between the Catholic Church and and the French Republic. Uh, we're still dealing with the aftermath of it, but 1905 was a was a very bad divorce, if I, I must say. Uh, my memory says there's also uh, has been a tremendous amount of resentment against the Catholic Church in France for uh, for various and sundry reasons. Was that part of the reason for the ugly divorce? Uh, well, I, I say um, you, you really had a split split. I mean, it was half half. Um, half of the the French people uh, couldn't believe that you could be actually French without being Catholic. Okay. So for them, it was like Quebec. In a sense, it was an identity that was rooted in religion and politics. And then for the other half, um, they they wanted to be free of uh, uh, doing other things and exploring other things. And and actually, the Protestants, along with the Freemasons and the free thinkers, uh, were uh, the ones who actually uh, uh, petitioned for uh, a strong divorce. Oh, and, okay. And in a sense, it, we we needed it needed to be said to the Catholic Church. 
we need to move into something that is different. And the Catholic Church couldn't envision actually operating differently. That's why the divorce was such a difficult um, uh, deal, uh, because uh, on, on the Catholic side, uh, they were not at all pleased with the way things were going. It was not an agreed uh, position that uh, we had to move into a pluralistic society. Uh, France was still considered to be the daughter of the Catholic Church, and as such had to remain under uh, the authority somewhere, somehow, of, uh, of Rome. Wow, that's a, a really great understanding and makes sense about why there's so much disconnection, I guess, from the Catholic Church today, if, if, if there was that much fighting that was going on for so long. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by the MA in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership Program at Wheaton College Graduate School, preparing leaders to serve the most vulnerable and the church globally. I spoke with Jamie Ayton, founder and executive director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute. Jamie, so a student becomes a part of this program and they're not waiting until the end of the program to sort of get involved in this kind of help. No, actually just this morning I met before our classes with a small group of our students who are going to be helping lead some teams in Puerto Rico over spring break for the recovery process there. Our teams are typically a combination of students and faculty and staff. Our teams also deployed, for example, to the Philippines and Japan and Haiti. Uh, one of my colleagues right now is actually in the Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya, where she's helping to provide, and the rest of our team who's there, providing trauma training to some of the refugee pastors so that they can better care for members in the camp. For more information, go to wheaton.edu hdl. So I want to actually go back to what we were talking about in the aftermath of the fire at the Notre Dame when Macron or some of these other leaders are talking about it. Do they feel like they need to be careful with with how they talk about things like this in light of all the history that you just talked about? Yeah, I mean, for, for pr practically one, one century, uh, pretty much uh, throughout the 20th century, uh, you had to be, as a political figure, you had to be very, very careful. And not to identify yourself with the Catholic Church. That doesn't mean that uh, you had to be an atheist to be uh, to be leading the country. Like Charles de Gaulle uh, was a great president, a uh, great general, and he was a, a devoted Catholic. But he would not go to the mass on Sunday. He would only go to the mass uh, whenever he would be back in his own parish, or he would uh, he would take communion in a private setting. Uh, so uh, from that point on, it was very important that the leader, the political, the public figure. Uh, of the Republic uh, would abstain from actually identifying itself to a church tradition. Um, I must say that with um, uh, already with Sarkozy and also with Macron now, uh, we're moving into an, a second stage of uh, secularization, I'd say. If the, in the first stage, especially the 20th century, uh, the role of the state was to keep the Catholic Church uh, at bay, in a sense, uh, far from any any relationship or influence uh, on the political scene. Uh, now we're moving into a second phase, which I would call the post-secularization uh, post phase, post-secular phase. Uh, and that, that is the, the state sees itself now as a referee, more because, again, if you, if you take the number of practicing Catholics, uh, if you take the 6% figure or the 4%, a more recent figure, uh, it's no longer a threat to the government. Um, uh, you add that uh, the 3% Protestants, you add uh, on the top of it uh, roughly 5% practicing Muslims. And so what, what you end up is actually ha you have militant minorities uh, who are actually asking the right to express their faith 
yeah, in the public square. And then the so the state has to shift from being um, the protector of the republic to be actually a referee in, in facilitating the way religious minorities can express themselves in the public square. And that's a very, very new dynamic that we see in politics and Macron especially is very open to that kind of dialogue and and uh, is asking actually the state uh, to to be more uh, conducive and fruitful in the conversation with the religion uh, tradition uh, rather than just ignoring them altogether. Uh, again, remind me if my memory of news stories is faulty, but it does seem like when we hear stories of uh, how European countries are dealing with Muslims particularly and how they want to express their faith, by uh, wearing um, head coverings and such, that France, my my impression is France seems to have little patience with that sort of thing. Uh, is that is that a correct impression? Well, you have to remember that France has the largest Muslim community and the largest Jewish community in Europe. So we have to, you know, that's why the, the, whenever there's a political tension in the Middle East, uh, in the Israelo-Palestinian conflict, um, there's di- direct correlation in our suburbs. Um, and so the Muslim community tends to be very pro-Palestinian. And of course, you know, the Jewish community tends to be pro-Israel. So it's a tough place for the government to be in because they have to keep those two minorities at peace with one another. Uh, so um, it has to 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 use great care in the way um, we are dealing with uh, with Islam, uh, and I think the government is right in considering that not all Muslims are radicals, um, that uh, Wahhabism and Salafism is only one of the four strand, uh, strands of of, of Islam. Uh, actually, most of the Muslims in France are very peaceful. And they, they would abide more to a folk Islam coming from North Africa than, than a more uh, radical uh, Salafi. We, we see the complexity of trying to even bring uh, the Muslims together to form sort of a council of Muslims of France uh, that could speak of one voice. Uh, and, and when you look at the different trends and within uh, Islam, it's, they even have a hard time coming together around the table. There's a Moroccan trend, there's an Algerian trend, the Egyptian trend, the uh, Saudi trend. And it's different. It's not a monolithic segment. It's, it's multiple traditions uh, and and uh, multiple voices, which adds to the complexity of it. Yeah, absolutely. Before we get into more about Islam, because I do want to talk about that and immigration in general in France and how that's affected things. I did want to just ask you about the vandalism story that we mentioned at the beginning of the show. How has that been received in France? Are people aware that this is happening? Is this something that you think is a big deal or is just, you know, small incidences happening that are probably, I don't know, the result of local anger, but not necessarily symbolic of something larger that's happening? Well, I mean, you're right in a sense that uh, there's something new. Uh, if you look at the numbers of uh, of vandalism acts, uh, it's it's on the rise, and it's it it does raise the question why uh, why is it so? Uh, now you have to remember there's 22,000 uh, Catholic uh, uh, place of worships in the country. Uh, most of them uh, are empty. Uh, because uh, when you have a, a parish with uh, nine or ten villages, you have to regroup uh, all the worship into one or two places. And uh, so the, the, the Catholic Church is really stretched. Um, to give you just a figure, they've ordained uh, a little bit more than 150 priests last year. 
and that's to take care of 22,000 um, congregations. So, so you can see the, 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 the difficulty and the need of the Catholic Church actually to, 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 to request help from Africa and Asia in terms of priesthood to, to be able to fill up uh, the gap. Um, so a lot of the Catholic uh, buildings are, are just run-down buildings, uh, and so people come and squat them, and they think they can do uh, actually uh, everything they, they can or they want uh, in those places. Uh, other, which is not the majority, I think, are, are political statements, uh, or also the work of uh, satanic uh, cults that, uh, you know, they're very keen on breaking to the church and then finding the, the Holy Sacrament and then use that for their own uh, ceremonies. Oh, um, that's interesting. Yes, yes. So, so you, have, yeah, you have those a lot, uh, especially in the center of France uh, and in the West. All right, let's talk about immigration to France. Maybe you can just tell us right now, what countries are the majority of immigrants who come to France? Where, where are they from? So we had we had different waves of immigration uh, throughout uh, the, the centuries. Uh, we had uh, waves of immigration from Africa, of course, uh, from from the Caribbeans, uh, then in the 20th century from, from North Africa, from Italy, from Portugal. Uh, and then we have new waves of uh, migrants uh, coming through uh, uh, the Middle East um, and, and East Africa, West Africa. So those are, would be uh, Sir, uh, migrants from Syria, from uh, Iran. We have a large number of Iranians also coming in, uh, but also uh, from from Ethiopia, from Eritrea, uh, from Congo, uh, from uh, from Mauritania, from Libya. So those would be a recent, more recent waves of uh, of migrants uh, and. Uh, so because because Europe is 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 um, we, we call it the Schengen space. So if you enter into one of the European countries, you can actually uh, be very mobile uh, once you have uh, your paperwork. Uh, usually, people migrants will not stay in France, especially the new migrants. Uh, they would rather actually go to the UK. Um, because the UK uh, society is more uh, multi-community driven, it's more multicultural, and um, so you can you can move to Birmingham, for instance, and uh, and be an Afghan or be a Pakistanis and not even speak uh, a word of English, and uh, you still have a work, and you can still you know function. Uh, in France, if you don't learn the language, then that's it. You know, you cannot actually integrate into society. So it's very difficult for migrants to to make it to France because uh, the, the level of integration which is required by the state is so high that often uh, they, the migrants will choose uh, another country. And then also we have, you know, 9% unemployment. Uh, so we have a stock of unemployment, which is really high. So it's very difficult for them to find any sort of employment. So they tend to go through and not stay. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com.
Are many of the migrants who are either coming in now or who have been here for several decades, are many of them Christians? Well, uh, those coming from Syria usually are from a Catholic uh, tradition, and so they are very much welcomed by the Catholic uh, churches in our country, and uh, many have uh, found uh, sheltered among among the Catholic communities. Um, then uh, you have those coming from, from Congo. Uh, they are usually uh, evangelicals, and, and they, they do uh, sometimes uh, end up in our communities. And then you have those, which is the ballpark, coming from Muslim background. Uh, and those uh, either they they stay uh, or they tend to to go to the UK or uh, Germany, uh, where um, there are just more um, employment opportunities. So, can you tell us a little bit about the outreach that the evangelical churches that you have worked with or attended have done with these immigrant populations? Well, I must say that um, let's let's put it this way: I wish I would have some great stories to tell you. Uh, but the reality of the fact is that the, the French Evangelical Church, which is um, roughly 2,300 churches total in the country, last time I counted, uh, which is um, basically what you will find in the Dallas-Fort Worth uh, area. <laughs> okay. Wow. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's what we have for 66 million people. So you do the ratio. We have a church for every 32,000 inhabitants. Uh, and that means that uh, there's still a long way to go. And the evangelical church is, is still not totally missional in its thinking uh, and very much preoccupied to, to, to be able to survive, especially in rural areas. Uh, we have issues with um, uh, the ability to form a new generation to take over the existing churches. At the same time, uh, we want to plant more churches. But um, uh, about reaching out to the migrants, let's say that we praise the Lord for American missionaries who are willing to come and stay among, <laughs> amongst us uh, with a full-blown salary, and uh, they really have a heart for that. Um, uh, it's changing, especially among the new generation. We we see some, some great uh, ministries uh, in the West or in the North, uh, some in the South, uh, younger generations who are refusing to to follow the pattern of the classical evangelical church, to, to think that it should be somebody else's problem. It's changing a little bit, uh, but we're still far from actually embracing, uh, in a sense, the opportunity that is uh, in front of us, and I really much uh, regret uh, that uh, that state. So that, in terms of reaching out to immigrant communities, you're, uh, you're saying the church evangelical church doesn't do a great job of that. But are there uh, concerted efforts to reach out to the French population in general? I mean, your whole ministry is is based on that. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, uh, maybe the listeners will be uh, uh, surprised to, to, to hear that um, uh, currently we're opening a church every 10 days in France, ah, uh, which wow. make uh, the evangelical faith the fastest growing religious segment in France. So you're so you basically you're you're reaching out to disaffected Catholics and people who have lost all touch with religion. Uh, yeah, those those who, who call themselves Catholics and can't remember why, uh, okay. in a sense. Uh, so the distance is really uh, is really far out. But uh, we're also, I mean, uh, to be fair, I would say that the majority of the French uh, population is agnostic. You know, they they will. Uh, it's we we always had a sort of a core structural atheism stock. Uh, that we would be glad to ship to the states uh, at time if you, if you want some more, but it never really reached beyond fifteen percent. You know, one five, fifteen percent, and they're very vocal, but they don't get any traction. 
so uh, you know the majority, the two third majority of the French population is agnostic, soft agnostic, hard agnostic. Um, so it's it's a, it's different uh, in terms of uh, of evangelism than it's it's actually convincing a Catholic that they need to change their faith, uh, or an atheist that he needs to give up uh, is atheistic. It's more about presenting the God that uh, they think is there, uh, but they don't know how to get to him. So what does your ministry actually look like? Maybe you can tell us about its strategy, philosophy, and approach to trying to reach this population. Well, within the Ravi Zacharias ministry, we are um, keen on reaching the cultural influencers. Uh, that's really where our heart is. Um, and in France, that means, uh, you know, we're trying to, to, to reach out to those um, who are in the field of uh, politics and business, uh, but also in the fashion industry. Um, there's there's very few things done in the fashion industry. And if we have any listeners uh, interested in, in evangelism in the fashion industry, uh, I would be very happy to to be in touch with them because that's a, that's a segment, a sociological segments that um, – is really in need of the gospel, and uh, the, the, we have we have of course New York, but we have you know London and and Paris and Milan were the big uh, places for the fashion industry. So we want to reach out also to that segment, uh, those in in also in the fields of arts, and then in terms of of other ministries like uh, friends evangelization, uh, what we're trying to do is we we educate the local church about the role of the ministry of the evangelist. And we, we, we say uh, that uh, God, through uh, the sovereignty that is his, is still raising up evangelists in the local church. And we are very happy as a ministry to come alongside the local church and equip their evangelists in their midst so that they can actually then, in turn, equip the saints to give a reasonable answer uh, to the questions that people are asking about their faith. So we're um, uh, both a, uh, an evangelistic ministry, but also we're equipping the church uh, through evangelists to be a uh, better at um, being missionally driven. Yeah, it brought smiles to our faces to think about uh, reaching out to the fashion industry. But uh, if the depictions in the media of uh, life in the fashion industry, it would strike me that would be a fertile ground for evangelism. There's a lot of insecurity and uh, it's it's an environment that can really be brutal to people. Absolutely, it's it's tremendous. Uh, uh, the, 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 you know, it's it's a, it's a business. Uh, it's it's an industry that is geared around the idea of image. Uh, but you think about it, the first designer was God. Yes. So he knows uh, he knows about design. He knows about image. He knows about covering, and and um, and in a sense, humans are very different than animals because they're the only one who dress. So why do we dress? Why do we feel the urge, number one, to create, and second, to create something to cover something? Uh, and so it's it's actually crazy to see the different, I mean, the multiple bridges, uh, natural bridges in the conversation for the gospel. And we've seen people very hungry uh, to, to, to look at identity, issues of identity and image. And uh, we use the, the, you know, the Imago Dei, the image of God conversation to, 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 to bring them to the point of realizing that uh, what they're seeking through their craft is actually the God, the designer. When you're talking about these churches that are, these evangelical churches that are in France, are they more likely to be in the major urban areas or are they out in the countryside? Uh, we have uh, we have both uh, we have both in the rural and in the in in the cities. Um, I, I think where the church is not right now, it's it really in the heart of a big metropolitan uh, centers uh, like Paris and Lyon and uh, and and uh, North Marseille. 
two two reasons. Number one, it's very expensive uh, to live there, and so it's uh, it's very complicated to to rent a place of worship and to live in in the heart of the city. You have to remember that in in, in Europe, uh, rich people live downtown and poor people live in a suburb, uh, which is uh, which is different than it is in the states. Uh, if you take San Francisco or New Orleans, you have a better understanding the way our European cities are are built. So we we have a hard time now penetrating uh, really the heart of the cities. And, and the second reason why uh, it, it is difficult beyond just the, the the price tag, it's because we we still don't have the how to behave in a society. You know, for for so many centuries and years, we've uh, we were a persecuted minority. That it's only very recently that we are perceived to be something credible, uh, almost a, an alternative, a credible alternative to Catholicism. Uh, so we have to learn to exist in society the way we've uh, always felt society was um, was an enemy in a sense. So we, it's a learning curve for us. Um, we we only have very recently MPs who are evangelicals uh, or senators who are evangelicals. Uh, well, those in the in the field of academia, it's it's very very new, and it's great to see this younger generation wanting also to influence society. So I think what you're saying is that for a long time evangelicalism just hasn't had this type of cultural cachet or respectability, and I'm sure like many things, it also has a reputation that's influenced bro- very broadly by American evangelicals as well. Um. <laughs> yeah, which is uh, which is good and bad. I mean, depends who is in power, right? Uh, but I remember uh, when uh, George Bush uh, went to, to war uh, against Iraq, uh, there was um, uh, one of the big, uh, the equivalent of the, uh, the Newsweek magazine, if you say, uh, that had a big cover up, you know, uh, Bush is uh, heading uh, the evangelical cult who wants to conquer the world. A lot of media actually came to to see us and say, "Oh, okay. So, how come you are working for the the American government? Are you CIA?" <laughs> so, oh, wow! And it took us about ten years, you know, through um, very heavy communication to to sort of draw a distance um, to the American uh, um, policy to say, "No, there. You know, we actually, if you look back through history, we're Europeans first. <laughs> in the century. Yeah. Uh, so in a sense, uh, we were there before America was born. Uh, but at the same time, uh, let me tell you how much um, I personally, I'm thankful for the American church. You know, uh, in my tradition, 70% of the churches that were planted in France were planted because of uh, foreign missions. And Americans have uh, been the both part of this effort of missionary endeavor. And uh, I can only be thankful for the so many lives who decided to come and and do the work and learn the language, live their country and love my people. So I'm not the one who's going to um, to say anything negative about, about uh, America. You can say one or two negative things. It's okay. You know us. <laughs> now, that's the report I hear from many Christians in other countries as well. Uh, we do tend to be, uh, as well we should be, a little self-critical of our own efforts and uh, – how we could have 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 been better missionaries in the past and how we can be better missionaries in the present. But I'm always, when I do ask people on the ground in other countries that have a strong Christian presence due to uh, mostly American missionaries, they're fundamentally grateful for the efforts that were taken. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, we, we still have, as a, as a national church, a lot to learn. And uh, I really believe that the maturity of any given country is its propensity to send 
uh, his best people, men and women, uh, for kingdom's sake uh, to the nations. So one of the biggest stories that's come out of France in the past six months has been the Gilets Jaunes protests. And I didn't know to the extent that those protests have at all intersected with any of the work that either the Catholic Church and also the Evangelical Church is doing. Well, it was not really related or correlated uh, at any point. I think the Gilets Jaunes um, was uh, it was a multi-level conversation. That's why it's it's still today difficult to say who, who is the Gilets Jaunes, who is not a Gilets Jaunes. I think uh, today the Gilets Jaunes is, is more the story of some uh, extremist groups, anarchist left-wing groups who are trying to uh, topple the government. Um, and so they're adding a lot of confusion in the story. But the early Gilets Jaunes uh, were uh, the, uh, the the middle class and lower class who were expressing the fact that they were paying too much tax. And, and France is a welfare uh, country. It's a socialist country and, and requires a lot of tax to, to, to run the government. And it's true that at some point it became really very difficult for some of the families, especially uh, women raising children alone, to be able to 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 end the month um, in in the black. And so uh, it was um, just a profound frustration with the tax level uh, in the government. And I think the government responded uh, last week uh, to that uh, very uh, preoccupation. So I, I believe that the Gilets jaunes will fade out. And the only ones who will continue to militant uh, are, are usually more on the left wing uh, extremist side, and they want to redefine what the Republic is all about. You might want to translate that into English for how journalists here translate that. Oh, the yellow jackets? The yellow jackets, thank you. That's fair. Um, wh- one thing I think that is interesting, though, is that um, when you live in these countries that are welfare states in many ways, I think people's experiences of the church is different than in the United States, right? Lots of people experience the church through social services here in the U.S. because the government does not provide nearly as much. And so to some extent, there's not as much of an entry point sometimes for the church to be able to play a role in people's lives. Not like that's a bad thing. That's just a different thing, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. Uh, I mean, 1905 uh, was definitely, uh, you know, the end of uh, the supremacy uh, of the Catholic Church um, in the field of um, of education and and the medical field. And so uh, you also have in France a strong tradition of free association, uh, those uh, what we call 1901 association, and, and many actually are doing social work. Uh, but the bulk part actually is the government's uh, role is to take uh, care of the elderly and the poor and and then the free association and the church to do their part. But um, a welfare system is there's only one who is responsible for even the bad weather. It's called the president. uh, (laughs) You can find his phone number on on the White House. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So uh, having said that, then, what are the issues that are really important to the French evangelical community? I think one of the main issues we're having right now is is finding uh, new places of worship. Uh, really, it's uh, it's getting complicated. Again, we're, we're opening a church every 10 days, and that's a net figure. That means it's all the ones that we're opening minus the ones we're closing. So it's a, it's a net uh, net figure. Wow. Um, and and uh, so that means that we need to we need to find new places of worship. At the same time, those smaller congregations we had are are growing, which is a sign of health. And many uh, are doing uh, building uh, renovations. 
And, and that requires special uh, legislation for that. And so you know, part of the beauty of being French is to be very, very complicated when it comes to legislation. I don't know why, but we it's almost like we invented, uh, you know, administration uh, headaches. And we're very, <laughs> very good about that. And so it's, it's getting really complicated for our pastors who not only need to feed the flock, which is their first calling, but also to be experts in, uh, in uh, handicap law, <laughs> to fireproof building, to, you know, it's you have to be a lawyer, a notary. It's just crazy. An architect. Uh, it's it's very very complex, and the administration is not helping because uh, sometimes what they'll say is. You know, we really like you. We 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 understand. Who, we think we understand who you are. We we think we understand you're not a cult, <laughs> which is already a good progress. <laughs> um, but then they'll say, you know, if we help you, then we'll need to help all the other ones, and the other ones is basically the Muslims. And so, do we want to do that? Uh, do we want to help you? Because then they'll come and say, hey, you have the evangelicals. Then what about our prayer? Ah. Uh, room what about our mosque and and so that's where it becomes really complicated uh with uh political figures wait so why would france not want to help or why would it not want to make it easier for all religious groups to be able to open up new religious spaces that's a very good question <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, that's, that's part of the complexity to to move from a place uh, in the 20th century where the the you know the enemy was the Catholic Church to a place now where we have to reinvent a religious discourse in a public square, uh, but with militant minorities because the Catholics they want something, the Evangelicals they want something, the Muslims want something. The Jews want something. And so and, and, uh, some of the political figures uh, today, they have no clue how to actually navigate in in this new field of pluralism. Uh, what does it mean to, for the government to be a referee in that? Uh, and it's so it defaults back into the position where where we have to defend the sanctity of the republic. Hmm. But at the same time, that's not what the law said. The law said you have to guarantee that it's actually happening. And, and so we continue to have back and forth conversation with, with members of the government. And we've done quite a number of uh, publications with the National Council of French Evangelicals on that very topic, on what does it mean to be uh, to be a, a République laïque. Um, and what is the proper place of religion in a public square. Uh, but um, there's still so much to do, and especially uh, in the heads and the hearts of um, uh, those who are elected um, uh, for public service. Uh, and they, they still need to, to, to ramp up to the idea uh, that uh, it is legitimate uh, today in 21st century France to be an evangelical and, and to have a voice in the public square. So obviously we have an issue with empty churches here in the U.S., just like you in France, you guys in France have lots of empty churches. And at least in my experience in Chicago, I've seen a number of these turn into all different types of things, including the place that I do circus at is a former church. Um, most of them, of course, get turned into buildings where people end up living. Um, some of them turn into community centers. I not sure if any Catholic churches turn into Protestant churches. Presumably they do, but I don't know that I've seen that. But has there been any conversation about turning any of these empty Catholic churches into Protestant churches or to mosques or synagogues? Well, one, one thing for sure is that the church can can become a circus. Uh, and, and I've been a pastor and I tell you that it's it's, uh, it's often more, more the case than, than it is not. So <laughs> That makes perfect sense for your, for your circus to meet in the church. Uh, okay. Yeah, there's a partnership to do here. Um, 
but uh, to answer your question, uh, it's interesting, uh, and, and to pick back the conversation on, on, on Notre Dame, it is okay for the French person to see a Catholic church uh, being turned into a cultural center. And most will become a cultural center, uh, a place for artists to uh, to express their arts. One or two times uh, there were questions about uh, Muslims uh, buying Catholic um, churches to make them um, places of worship. And that did not go well at all. Uh, and especially the extreme right uh, raised the funds to be able to secure actually the premises uh, so that the Muslims would not actually buy it. And uh, that's still very much a very a sensitive and nationalistic agenda. And so uh, I, I don't I don't think uh, we'll see that happening. Now, when it comes to the to the evangelical churches, some Catholic churches are selling their premises uh, for a fortune. Number one, and two, when you look at actually the state of the church, the way it's actually run down, uh, it it is so cost uh, massive cost mm. in terms of maintenance mm-hmm. that uh, it it will kill us. Um, we don't have uh, you know the the financial backbone to be actually able to restore them to the to their proper measure. So we're seeing a trend um, for some hotels uh, to actually uh, invest in uh, those mm. uh, those those places of worship. Um, but usually the, the the people who will do that, they will respect um, in a sense uh, mm-hmm. the uh, tradition that was there. And when they do it, they do it uh, with elegance, uh, which is uh, which is uh, nice. Just part of the DNA of France. If you're going to do something, do it with elegance. There we go. There we go. I, I will say that, like, you know, American evangelicals do put churches in schools, and I go to house churches. I don't know if those are options that are on the table for the evangelical community when it opens new churches, too. But well, we can't. We, it's difficult to have access to 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 schools because they're majority public schools, and the Catholic schools uh, are not uh, that eager. Uh, for us but you guys can't meet in public schools? No, we can't. No, oh. that's just strict separation of oh. church and state, so that wouldn't be possible. So usually what happens is we find a, a, a business uh, and then we just uh, rent uh, the place. Uh, that's usually the, the, the way it happens. Huh. Or we, we build, but when we have to build, we will have to build outside of the city, uh, which means that we lack then uh, the cultural influence that we could have if we would be in, a, in the heart of a city. All right. So my next question is, how can we pray for the French evangelical church? And it sounds like zoning. Is, yeah, uh, I think, uh, in a sense, uh, we were growing and that's a, that's a happy uh, that's a happy thing. Again, a church every 10 days. Um, the, the, the low figure is 650,000 evangelicals in France. I, I believe we're more now into the one million. Uh, there's also the rise of a new generation who is taking a, a stand, a strong stance for their faith in the fields of politics and business and, and the fashion industry and the arts. So that's really uh, uh, topics of rejoicing. So we can celebrate for that. Uh, but we can also pray that, uh, um, you know, this this verse, to, to, to whom it has been given much, much will be required. Uh, for many years, France has been the recipient of uh, missionary uh, generosity, especially coming from America. I think it's time for France to turn around and start to give to other nations. Uh, when I see the need uh, in North Africa, in the Middle East, it's just around the corner. Um, I live in Nice. Uh, I'm an hour away from uh, from North Africa, it's, it's, and and we're um, we're not doing our part uh, in a sense. Uh, and so, I, I, my prayer would be that the evangelical church would uh, 
go through a strong uh, missional conversion and start actually blessing uh, other nations uh, to, to, to pay it back, in a sense, and to pay it forward. Well, thank you so much for this, Raphael. It was really great to hear more about what is going on in your country with regards to the church. People who have comments, questions, or feedback can direct it to us by sending us an email. We're at podcastatchristianitytoday.com, or they can go on Twitter at CT Podcasts, and you can find us there. This podcast is made possible by everyone who is able to support the ministry of Christianity today. And this is a big week for us here, in fact, because today is our last day that our CEO will be the CEO before we get a new CEO. And so as part of that, well, actually, no, as part of that, there's annual board meetings. But I know this was kind of like celebrated last year, last week Week, yeah, at the board meeting. Yeah, it was a it was a. Pretty special time. We uh, said good. We were saying goodbye as a board. Not we. I guess the board was saying goodbye to Harold uh, Smith. He'd been he's been president for ten years during a very difficult period. He, he ent- entered his his administration just when the recession hit, and he had to he had he and the people who were in charge at the time had to make some very hard decisions in order to keep this ministry afloat. And now I think we're in a very stable. Uh, not only a stable, but Like Raphael said, we are just thinking about ways to reach out globally with our ministry. So that's all due to his leadership. So it was interesting. We had at his goodbye dinner the previous president, Harold Myra, the current president, Harold Smith, and the future president, Tim Dalrymple, all together. Uh, They uh, they uh, the former two presidents laid hands on the new coming president. So it was one of those just bittersweet moments. But a, mostly a celebration of the past and the, and the future that we're going to have. So, yeah, and we'll remember that today at this reception that we're having. It tells you something about the personality of Christianity today: the fact that the former president and the current president and the future president can all be in the same room and actually look like they love each other. Wow! And <laughs> Some, tell me about Mark. That Mark says they look like they love each other. <laughs> well, what I mean is, I'm being facetious, but uh, you know, we know of many evangelical organizations in which there is. Mm-hmm. A lot of tension or uh, currently or scandal mm-hmm. or tension between the incoming and outgoing and all that sort of thing. And that is we are fortunate to not to be in a good place right now. We really are. I, I mean, we talk about this all the time, but half the shows that we do sometimes feel like they're about situations that could never happen like that. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. anyway, if you would like to support CT that way, you can do that by going to morect.com slash podcasts, morect.com slash podcasts. And we know that many of you give already and we're really thankful for that. All right. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments and everyone gets to share something that's brought them joy recently. Go ahead, Mark. Well, I was in Denver visiting uh, my newest grandchild, Julia, who's a a month old. She was she was cute, but awfully sleepy. So didn't spend much time with her. More her fun bit. in the future. <laughs> but got to spend some good time with my grandson on Monday while Morgan was nagging me about what we should do for quick to listen. We were at a theater watching Missing Link. Good. With popcorn in hand and afterward went out for yogurt wow. and then went to Target to buy some Pokemon cards. It was just yeah. A seven-year-old's delight. <laughs> Which is probably your delight, too. Yes, it was. It was a delight to see him so delighted. And you don't see him as often as you see some of your other grandkids. Right, exactly. So. so I'm sure he was thrilled you could come out. And it's also good to attend, attend church with them to see their church situation. They're in a kind of a startup church. They rent a building, and 
trying to reach out to the Denver, you know, younger generation. So it's very encouraging. All right. Where can people find you outside of this? I publish something called The Galley Report. Uh, it's a weekly newsletter in which I'm linked to articles and comment on them. Uh, many people find it uh, interesting. You might want to check it out. Basically, what it boils down to is what is Mark Galley interested in? And if uh, you read it and you find that you are, you can subscribe. Awesome. All right, Raphael. Yeah, uh, just uh, come back from the Sahel. Uh, we spent, uh, as a family, uh, a week uh, down in the south of Tunisia, and we were in the desert. Uh, and it was the first time I really had the chance to experience the desert, uh, and it was beautiful. So uh, what did you do? Was... Did you guys sleep outside in a tent, or you rode on yeah, a camel? Or... Yeah, right in the middle of a sandstorm. It was uh, it was crazy. Ah, uh, wow. But it was, it was beautiful to see, actually, how... Uh, lively the desert is you know when we think about the desert we we sometimes think about uh, death but only a little uh, shower here and there will will allow you to see beautiful flowers uh, coming out of the ground out of nowhere and it's very noisy the desert and so it's it's in those places that uh, you can uh, really listen to silence but also to to see the sound of rebirth and uh, to be able to experience that um with my kids and my wife, uh, it was just really delightful, uh, and also to to be able to live like the people in the desert, uh, and like the nomads uh, under the tent, and and eat uh, local food and uh, cook bread uh, 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 in the sand. It was just um, unreal uh, and magic. So, so what do they do? Do they you they drive you out to? In, yeah, in some, you, like... you need to you need to get uh, uh, you can, you can walk. I mean, there's people crazy enough to actually do that by walk, kinds. Uh, <laughs> uh, but usually, what you do is you you, you go into a sort of a SUV uh, which is designed specifically for those kind of conditions, and then it takes you about an, a, a full day to get uh, to the middle of the of the desert. Uh, we have you have dunes that are uh, just uh, 20, 30 meter high, and it's just sand uh, all around you. It's just uh, incredible. And then and then you spend some some time in a desert, and you go from oasis to oasis, and it's uh, it's um, it's beautiful. Wow! And I, I my experience, I only spent like one day in the desert when I was in Jordan a couple years ago. The stars were insane. Like you could see, I don't know, I don't remember ever seeing better stars than when I was in Wadi Rum. Oh, it's magic. Uh, and uh, be- because also the desert, it's such a biblical theme. It also uh, allows you to relate more uh, to, to scriptures in a sense. Where can people find you outside of the show? Well, they can find me on on Twitter and, uh, and Facebook, uh, Raphael uh, Enzenberger. Uh, we also have uh, the rzim.fr uh, website. Uh, that's for the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries in France. And of course, uh, rzim.org, uh, which is um, the, uh, the the overall global platform uh, for uh, Ravi Zacharias Ministries. So um, do, do check us out. And we have ministries uh, globally in different regions of the world. And come and see us uh, wherever or if we are around one of your cities. And spell your last name for people. It's A-N-Z-E-N-B-E-R-G-E-R. It could be longer, but uh, we chose to to make it like this. (laughs) (laughs) All right. My precious moment this week was, well, so it was my birthday, which was kind of a mixed precious moment. I missed that. Sorry. Well, now you owe (laughs) me. Don't travel so much. (laughs) Wow. I get victim blamed. All right. So my birthday, I had made plans to like hang out at the beach. And 
as Mark doesn't know, because Mark is like, oh, the weather was so bad in Colorado. It snowed on my birthday all day. Oh, yeah. I read, um, I read about that. Yeah. So, no, we did not go to the beach. Um, and not only that, but I like woke up not feeling well, which I usually feel well all the time. And so that was extremely yeah, frustrating. that would be unusual for you. Exactly. So I was like, this sucks. But whatever. It was still all right. One of the things that we ended up doing was there's this... Thing, I guess, that happens every year called Soup Disco, and it's an event that takes place around the world where they try to draw attention to how much food people throw away every year. And so they get all these donations of food from people, different grocery stores and restaurants, and then they cook it all up into, you know, really healthy, great soup and salad. And then they served a free meal. So we went to that and helped cook a little bit with all of that too, which was really nice and fun. And I learned more about this, like the catering place that was hosting it is apparently the most like sustainable catering place in the U.S., which is also interesting. Yeah, my son-in-law is an avid dumpster diver, mostly because of the issue of waste. And he, it is stunning what he finds in dumpsters in the back of grocery stores. Yeah, and How also, much good food that's still good, but for one reason or another, stores are not allowed to keep it on the shelf. Or, like, give it to their employees. Like, I mean, come on. That's right. like part of the other thing that's so ridiculous. All right. Well, that's a different topic for another day. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. You can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can listen to the podcast wherever you'd like, including Apple Podcasts. This podcast is produced by myself and Cray Allred, and the music is by Sweeps. We will see you all next week. Bye. Bye.